Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Today, I'm talking with Jess Myers. I'm the new Legal Advocacy Council at Chamber of Progress. As a lawyer and a technologist, I primarily focus on the intersection of law and the internet. In addition to being well-known in tech policy circles, Jess is also incredibly thoughtful about careers in tech policy and is a mentor for law students and non-law students alike. In our conversation, we touch on technology policy as a career path and what it's like for lawyers and engineers to work together on policy issues. But our main focus is trust and safety, which is the industry term for the field that encompasses everything from content moderation to the business and technical decisions companies make and often struggle with to ensure that their products and platforms are usable. We talk about everything from the legal and business challenges of trust and safety to the technological realities that make it such a challenging but important field. Currently work for Chamber of Progress. Can you tell us a little bit about who or what Chamber of Progress is? Yeah, absolutely. I believe I'm in my third week at Chamber of Progress. Um, so Chamber of Progress is a center-left industry policy coalition focused on promoting technology's progressive future. So Chamber of Progress, we work to ensure that all Americans benefit from technological leaps and that the industry it operates responsibly and fairly. Our organization also looks at tech specifically through a progressive lens. So what that means is we speak out to make sure that platforms maintain the right to moderate content on their platform. So that's, you know, like taking down hate speech and misinformation. And then we also deconstruct the right wing sort of censorship myth that we hear throughout. And on top of that, we advocate for new technologies that help marginalized communities like autonomous vehicles that can provide additional mobility for, you know, to non-drivers. Um, and we champion a consumer-first competition policy that elevates the needs of consumers over those of businesses. And what's really interesting about Chamber of Progress is actually our business model. It's very, it's, it's a bit different from your typical uh, trade associations. So here at Chamber, our corporate partners do not have a vote or a veto on any of our positions. We do not speak for individual partner companies, and we remain true to our stated principles, even when our partner companies disagree with them. That's not usually typical of trade associations. So I, I have to pick up on something in there that I, I find really interesting. You describe the chamber as a center left and you use the term progressive and responding to right-leaning concerns about censorship online. I'll just say I'm completely confused about the politics of online speech and technology nowadays, and we can't spend our entire discussion talking about that question, the, tech, the, the politics of technology. But since you framed the uh, work of the chamber as center left, I expect that many progressives would view you arguing for Section 230 and these protections for the platforms as not progressive at all. Um, so I'm just curious where in the political milieu of today do you see these issues fitting in? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So usually folks on the left, when we're talking about the Section 230 debate, are they'll come after technology companies for not doing enough on the internet. So they'll usually cite to, there's so much hate speech online. How come these companies aren't doing more about COVID and climate health misinformation? And so where we come into play 
is, again, we extensively advocate for upholding Section 230 and upholding the First Amendment because we you know, strongly believe that Section 230 and the First Amendment in their current form and to their current extent allow for these internet services to cater to some of these progressive ideals, to keep hate speech offline, to keep misinformation, disinformation about COVID and climate offline, and to amplify and promote the high-quality speech that champions the sort of progressive ideals that these tech companies kind of cater to. And it's amazing that you just started at Chamber of Progress because I think if most people were to look around at the state of the tech sector today, they would view it as a, a sector under attack from many quarters. And I expect a lot of folks looking at career opportunities and trajectories would say, oh, defending the tech sector, let's run the opposite direction. But I, I don't think that you accidentally fell into this position. I think that you ran to this position. So can you tell us a little bit about why you've entered the fray like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. My career path, I would say, is kind of a little convoluted. I started out wanting to go to law school because I thought I was going to be a patent lawyer, which is really funny to think about now considering where I am um, today um, because I was a technologist. So I, I graduated computer science. And so I figured, okay, as a computer scientist, I absolutely have to go to law school and become a patent lawyer. And that's the only thing computer scientists do. It wasn't until I actually took an internet law class in my senior year of college, where, by the way, it was a required course that's not usually common of computer science classes, where I started to learn about things like Section 230 and how it interplays with the First Amendment and why it's important for preserving online speech and expression. And that's when the pieces started coming together for me that, wow, I can actually go to law school and there's an entire field dedicated to the study of internet law and the study of trust and safety and content moderation and how products and services are governed both online and by, you know, the government as well. So that was sort of why I decided to go to law school and how I ended up in the internet law space. I ended up studying internet law for the next three years at Santa Clara University School of Law. And then from there, I figured, well, if I want to influence and shape internet and tech policy, then I need to work for you know, one of the biggest internet companies in the world to be in a position to do that. And so that is why I had always had my my sights set on working for Google. I sort of viewed Google as, you know, not only the corporation that is going to have a lot of influence on tech policy, but it's also it was, you know, one of the businesses that was most closely aligned with my own principles on free speech and preserving Section 230. So I felt that the match made sense there. I actually started in trust and safety at Google. It was an opportunity that came up when I was a third-year law student. So I ran with it because I figured might as well learn about the products and services of the company before I tried to advocate on behalf of the company for tech policy that affects these products and services. I did that for a year. Then I ended up switching from trust and safety to government affairs and public policy, where I was a senior public policy analyst. And I spent a lot of my time working on both state and federal portfolios. And I stepped out of the trust and safety world a little bit. I stepped sort of away from even the legal and, and counseling world. And I really started to understand sort of how the political and regulatory environment about that influences, you know, tech policy and, you know, for these companies. So I spent a lot of time working on state and federal content policy. And I did a little bit of a stint with Google's litigation team where I started working on several of the, the, the current cases that are in front of the Supreme Court for a review right now, which will affect Section 230 of the First Amendment and how these internet services publish speech. 
So that's sort of how I got through Google. And then this position of Chamber of Progress came along. And it was interesting because I had always said to myself, I had always said, I'm, I'm sure you could look up past podcasts where I said, I'm going to always be in these JD Advantage type roles, public policy, trust and safety. I never wanted to be a lawyer. I said, I don't want to be a traditional <laughs> lawyer. I don't want to practice. And I said, the number one thing I don't want to do is litigation. And here I am, you know, a year later after graduation at the Chamber of Progress as their in-house counsel, primarily focused on litigation. So that is all to say, keep an open mind. There's a lot you can do in this space. And I sort of, the reason I decided to leave ultimately was this is an interesting opportunity and I have a lot left to learn outside of Google specifically. Yeah, so I would love to give you a chance to uh, give law students and others interested in these sort of career paths some sense of what they should be thinking about if you're interested or they are interested in technology policy. As you said, the positions that you have been previously in are so-called JD Advantage uh, positions, which means it's helpful to be a lawyer or have a law degree, but not necessary. And certainly you also can go to law school and get a law degree or be a current law student interested in these areas and try to get into these fields. So what advice would you give really anyone who is interested in working in these areas? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll double click on the JD Advantage point a bit. JD Advantage, it often comes with it a stigma. And I'll, I'll speak a little bit about that because I dealt with it when I was in, in law school. Um, JD Advantage was often framed as sort of the jobs that you take because you don't know how to become a traditional lawyer or you didn't do enough or didn't have the grades to become, you know, an in-house attorney or you know, work at a firm. And that's absolutely not the case. JD Advantage roles are, they give you an opportunity to work on other interesting things, take on other interesting roles that are not necessarily legal counsel, but that require the expertise that comes with getting a JD. So that can look like, you know, I've got friends at Google who went into privacy engineering. They were former technologists, really interested in privacy, and they were able to find a role that caters to both. That can be something like the public policy uh, paths that, that I discussed earlier. It can be something like going into trust and safety and writing product policies and working cross-functionally with lawyers and with technologists, engineers, your business folks. So the point is, there is a lot that you can do with your law degree. And I feel like often law schools sort of overlook that and they try to force us into, you know, one of two paths, work for a firm, work in-house or work for a firm to go in-house. So with that said, my first piece of advice is to keep an open mind. And what I mean by that is to be very thoughtful about the things you're discovering throughout law school that you like and also that you don't like that you would be doing in this space. And then work from there to build out what your dream role looks like, whether that's in trust and safety, policy, legal, et cetera. Stop thinking about it as, what is my title going to be? What is the company I'm going to work for? And start thinking about it as what do I want to be doing in my day to day? What is when I wake up in the morning? What am I doing? And am I feeling fulfilled and happy in doing that work? Then you work backwards from that. And then you start to piece together what your role looks like. Now, trust and safety is really interesting. It's a relatively new and still evolving field. So for a lot of folks, and I've seen this with some of my mentees at Santa Clara Law, your perfect role may not be out there because it literally has not been created yet. So you can use that as an opportunity to get creative and build something for yourself that caters to your interests and your expertise. Now, more practically speaking, you know, so you're, you're going to go to law school, you're going to think about what you like, you don't like, you're going to start to build out what your every day to day looks like. 
If you know that you want to work in, let's say, trust and safety, practically, I strongly recommend checking out the resources available on the Trust and Safety Professional Association's website, TSPA. Um, you're going to find all sorts of helpful information about how to break into the trust and safety space. And you'll find a job board with many opportunities for all types of skill sets and backgrounds. Again, that'll be legal, engineering, public policy, you name it, it'll be on that job board. And then I also suggest for anyone, doesn't have to be trust and safety, but really anyone that is interested in this sort of tech policy, tech legal space, start attending conferences, panels, lectures, talks, just within your local community. If you can travel, you have the opportunity to do that, do that as well. Um, because that's how you start learning who the key players are in this space and how you build your network. So you have to put in a little bit of extra work to step outside your law school and start figuring out who's who and what are we talking about and what is the current, you know, what are the things that are keeping us up at night? What's controversial? That's another way you're going to start to figure out, by the way, what it is that you want to do and versus what you may not want to do. It's really commendable how you've gotten into this position, Jess. You are the example of everything that you're saying. I think by the time you graduated, you were already very well known in the field. And it's by doing exactly what you said, being a presence at conferences, participating in discussions, just even getting involved um, in the day-to-day -day discussion on Twitter or maybe Mastodon, I'll, I'll just say that, um, uh, talking about some trust and safety issues that we may or may not get into. I also want to just note, and this is one of my own big hobby horses nowadays, you're coming from the perspective of law students and law schools. You don't need to be a law student or go to law school necessarily to get into these positions or to work in this field generally. Certainly, it's easier to get into policy work, but if you're an engineer or a computer scientist or really almost any field, if you're interested in these topics, there's opportunity for you and there's a role for you and there's a voice for you. The challenge is if you're not a traditional candidate for these positions, you need to demonstrate your value before you're going to be given an opportunity to get your foot in the door. So follow the path that Jess is advising and advocating. And actually, my next question for you, Jess, you come from a engineering computer science background as a software engineer. And I assume, this is an assumption on my part, that in your time, perhaps before at Chamber of Progress, you've had an opportunity to work with non-lawyers and in particular engineers on these issues. So I, I wonder if you could reflect on your experience working with engineers in policy discussions and perhaps more generally, and their role in these discussions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic question. And yes, I did. Um, you know, before I was ever in law school, before I was at Google, I spent a bit of time as a software engineer working for a defense contractor in uh, Northern Virginia. Trust and safety, and we'll just kind of start with that and we'll we'll when I'm referring to trust and safety, it's sort of an umbrella topic talking about all of these different opportunities that you have in the tech policy space. And I'll quickly just interject and say, we'll actually come back for listeners to talk about what trust and safety is. That'll be the second half of our discussion. So uh, don't worry, we're going to get into the details on this term that we keep using. Absolutely. So trust and safety is absolutely a multi-stakeholder effort these days. And so what I mean by multi-stakeholder is you can't adequately moderate content without the necessary context from folks like your lawyers, for example, who understand the laws that govern the different regions and markets where the content is being shown. At the same time, you need regional and government affairs experts that understand the culture, norms, the regulatory disposition of those markets. And then you have your engineers. 
your engineers actually understand how the product works and what the product can do. And more importantly, what the product can't do. The last thing you want is your lawyers and your government affairs folks making promises to the government that are technologically infeasible for the business. So the engineers, they operate by having a deep and robust understanding of the product's technical hard lines. Not to mention the engineers are usually responsible for developing the moderation tools themselves if your company is relying on in-house tooling. I remember one of my favorite experiences at Google when I was in the trust and safety department was working with some of the Google engineers that were assigned to my workspace products. So I, I primarily was a legal policy specialist for Google Workspace. That's going to be your products like Google Drive, Google Meet, email, calendar, et cetera. And so I would often every week, I would have a meeting with our engineering teams that were responsible for these products. And I would find myself getting into tech policy debates with the engineers. And I always thought that was, I always walked away either learning something new or with a different perspective. Because again, these engineers, they have been so ingrained into the product and the core functionality of the product that they also understand or they begin to understand how today's policy and political environment affect and impact the work that they are currently doing. So they typically have a lot of passion and a lot of interest in the work that we're doing too. And so this usually for me, it turned into, you know, I'd have lunch with them and they'd ask me, well, what does this mean when we're seeing it on CNN? What is, what is section 230? And why is everyone talking about it? And why is everyone mad about it? And it would be a two-way conversation. And those were my most enriching and probably the most fun conversations that I would have at Google because we were both teaching each other something and we were both relying on each other. You know, they would trust me that I'm not going to go off and make random policy promises that I know will completely impact their team and their, their team's development roadmap in the same way that I know that they would bring me into a conversation if they're considering a feature or, you know, a new development that could seriously create issues for the regulatory environment that we're operating in either here in the US or elsewhere. So it's such an important aspect of trust and safety. And it's why I always say trust and safety is a multi-stakeholder effort. It cannot be just lawyers. It cannot be just government affairs folks. It has to be a wide community of folks that all care about the product, work on the product and care about these issues at hand. Are there any things that you find or found engineers consistently intuitively misunderstand. I'll, I'll frame it that way. And I'm, I'm going to ask the same misunderstanding question for lawyers as well. So not trying to be mean to engineers. Are, are, are there uh, misconceptions that engineers you find frequently have about law and policy? Yes. And it's the same misconception that lawyers have about engineers too. So this will, I'm cheating. This will be the same answer for both. Um, I was surprised about this and I can speak as, as a former engineer as well. When I went to law school, I had no idea that none of the law is black and white. And so I'll go into these conversations with the engineers and they'll ask me, well, if we just delete this, or if we just let, what if we don't host content in this silo? Or what if we make X, Y, Z changes? Then we're totally good, right? We're totally clear. And they'd get very upset with me when I would say, well, it depends. Or, you know, well, I can't promise that it's 100% okay. But if you make these steps towards this correction, that's going to give you the best chance to be in compliance with these laws. So I think it's for engineers, it's understanding that the law is not exactly black and white, and it's coming to terms with and accepting the fact that in some circuits of the US, for example, the law can look very differently than in other circuits, and that one judge will say one thing and a judge will say another thing, and we're supposed to interact and exist in this space in the middle 
that hopefully covers all of it. That is a very uncomfortable sort of notion for engineers to understand. And so going to your question, what about lawyers and engineers? It's interesting. As a lawyer, we're raised in this it depends sort of world. But then all of that goes out the window when we think about engineering. I'll have lawyers that'll just be like, well, why can't they just build it? Why can't they just make the product do X, Y, Z? Because that may not actually be technologically feasible for a product that didn't have those considerations built in at the very beginning of the product's development cycle. Or they may not understand, you know, lawyers and public policy folks may not understand how long a change takes to implement. I think the best example of this is actually the Twitter edit function. I know this is going to get really controversial, but (laughs) if you take the Twitter edit function, for example, folks are like, why can't we just have an edit button? This seems very easy. Facebook has an edit button. And the problem is both a policy one. You know, it would be not so great if I tweet out something and then it gets retweeted and it goes viral and then I decide and people like it and then I decide to change my message. And now you're liking and retweeting and endorsing something that you didn't actually agree with in the first place. But it's also a very technologically complex problem, too. I've had these conversations with Twitter's engineers in order to sort of stave off a lot of the policy concerns. There is a lot of reworking that has to be done to Twitter's product in order to get something as what seems as so simple as an edit button. So it's understanding that both parties have very complex problems that are not black and white, that cannot be answered simply. And then sort of having some empathy towards both of those teams and figuring out how to coexist and deal with those complexities. As another example, or not quite an example, the name of this podcast is Tech Refactored. And refactoring refers to the process of rewriting an existing code base, either to improve its efficiency or add new features or really anything along those lines. And it is an exceptionally complex problem about the worst thing that you can ask an engineer to do is, oh, can you rewrite that code and just implement this one feature? It's so easy. Uh, No, because in order to rewrite that one feature, the way that complexity works, you effectively need to understand how that one change in code affects every other line of code. And that is a super exponential problem in terms of complexity. Um, So... Uh, if you want to introduce more problems, try and fix existing code. Um, there we have it right there. Let's turn now to uh, talk about what trust and safety is. This is a term that you and I have been bandying about pretty freely and loosely. I have a somewhat glossy idea of how we might define trust and safety, but it's also a term that is very frequently in the news and the public conscience nowadays, because this is what content moderation is about. This is what the changes that we're seeing at Twitter today are about. This this is the central question in many ways of the Section 230 debates. And we just had a conversation with Eric Goldman in a previous episode about challenges to Section 230 going up to the Supreme Court. So these are really big issues. So can we uh, just start by asking, what is trust and safety? Yes. So as I said previously, trust and safety is a rather new and ever-evolving field. So my definition or what I consider trust and safety may be very well be different from your definition, may be very well different from the definitions that you see when you Google what is trust and safety. The way I define trust and safety, so trust and safety has expanded over the years to cover a wide array of functions having to do with what our industry typically refers to as content moderation. So in other words, trust and safety is all about creating policies and enforcing those policies in a way 
that not only keep your users safe online, but also preserves free expression. And that's the hard part about trust and safety. Can you say a bit more about what makes trust and safety so difficult? Intuitively, this seems obvious to everyone until you start thinking about it. But can you spell out the until you start thinking about it? I I see a, a problematic post on Facebook. I know that's bad. I see chat GPT say something that's offensive and that's problematic. We, we can't do that. Or I see a AI generated image that is altering a photo in a way that is embedding racial stereotypes. Obviously, that's bad. Why can't we just make the AI not do bad things? See, and you're, you're doing the exact thing that we discussed before with the engineers and the lawyers. But it's a great question. Um, I think it's best explained with a, a few examples that I have in mind. So, you know, every single online service that publishes, and I know that's a controversial word these days, publishes user-generated content faces some flavor of trust and safety issues. The type of issues the service could face uh, often has a lot to do with the way that the service is designed and the audience it caters to and the political climate. So for example, let's take Twitter. Twitter is all about broadcasting content to as many viewers as possible. So hence, Twitter often deals with what we call virality issues like the spread of mis- and disinformation about elections or COVID-19. Um, Twitter deals with spam, bots, antisocial content that ultimately detracts from productive conversations. So, you know, Twitter is also the place where most news is broken. And that itself comes with its own set of potential issues as well, especially when it comes to information integrity. So Twitter is going to deal with all of these types of issues where you're dealing with one-to-many broadcasting and anybody can speak. Um, about any topic, whether they're an expert or not, whether they're a political actor or not, that's going to come with its array of, of unique content moderation challenges. Now, compare that with something like Discord, which is designed to not necessarily have as much reach as Twitter. But at the same time, Discord-like services that cater to smaller communities can often run into the echo chamber problem. So because there's less public oversight, we don't know what's being said and shared in private servers. And if everyone's on the same page in that server, private servers could become a breeding ground for radicalization, for example. And so that's a whole set of different challenges that's going to be very different and unique from Twitter. And then you have services that host what, you know, what we call ephemeral content or content that sort of disappears after it's been put out into the world. That's going to be stuff like Snapchat and Twitch. On the one hand, ephemeral content is really difficult to moderate because, you know, in the moment, because you have to catch it got to have moderators that are seeing it at that time. On the other hand, ephemeral content can very quickly become static content when folks screenshot and record and disseminate that content widely across platforms. That's where things get even more challenging because it doesn't stay on the platform it originated from. We saw this with the recent Buffalo shooting tragedy. The biggest critique was that Twitch didn't take it down in time. But following that issue, People had already also recorded and spread it to underground services, even to just mainstream services, but mostly to underground services like 4chan. So that's ephemeral content challenges. And then as you know, I'll, I'll bring in Google as well, since it's the closest that I've worked in, in content moderation. You know, Google and YouTube also deal with content moderation issues. So Google search is essentially a massive index of everything on the web. So Google has to navigate which content it chooses to prioritize how to ensure high quality information and high quality sources sort of display closer to the top. And of course, ensure that illegal content is kept out. 
YouTube itself even has unique content moderation challenges from Google. So YouTube deals with, you know, your typical disinformation, hate speech, crypto scams, IP infringement. But what's particularly interesting about YouTube is when you're dealing with video content, you often have to draw lines between videos that are uploaded for educational and, you know, or protest purposes, such as extremist content and content that depicts human rights violations versus content that's uploaded to radicalize and incite hate and violence against a particular group. That context is super tricky to navigate. And it's so tricky to navigate that it's actually ultimately landed YouTube in front of the Supreme Court in the recent case we're seeing with the Gonzalez v. Google. It's simple, but the thing that I like most about that answer is I had actually just written out who, what, where, when, why, how as my questions for this discussion about trust and safety. And I crossed out when, because I was thinking, you know, when isn't really a trust and safety issue, but it is. It is. There are some services where you need to do it in real time, or you need to do it uh, immediately, or perhaps you might want to preserve the ability to do it retroactively. Um, there are other services where that's not uh, as much of an issue. So when is an issue? And also just to pull out from your answer, it sounds like there are, are clearly business reasons for how you do your content moderation or your trust and safety work. There are technical reasons governing what you can and can't do. There might be community reasons, which might be different from or related to the business sort of decisions, who your customers are, how you're uh, supporting and developing that community, as opposed to how you make money as a business. And then there are also, of course, legal reasons. So it's a complex set of issues that you need to have in here. I'm going to ask you the impossible question. How do you balance or how does a company balance all these competing issues? That is a difficult question. That's sort of the impossible question about content moderation. And, and it asks sort of, you know, how do we protect our users? How do we protect the business? And if you're really good at it, how do you do both of those and ensure continued access to information and preserve free expression? You can't really have good content moderation without any of those factors. The challenge involved with striking that balance is why trust and safety has become an entire profession in itself, which is often why I smile when these new services or CEOs come along and attempt to boil their content moderation approach down to things like, we'll allow anything that's protected by the Constitution, or we'll just have a conversation with the trolls. You know, it's, it's not that easy. But again, it's, it, I go back to my answer regarding who are the players in trust and safety and why it is such an important aspect that trust and safety be multi-stakeholder. Because you might bring one perspective when you're, when you're working on a really tricky, we call it escalations. Those are typically content that is specifically tricky to operate on. It, you, it's hard to make a decision as to whether to keep that content up or down because it might have content that's controversial, political, um, and may not have a very clear yes or no answer that often gets escalated up to conversations with everybody in the room. That's going to be your lawyers. It's going to be PR. It's going to be marketing and communications, et cetera. And all those folks will come together to ultimately come up with a final answer. And I'll also add, too, that one of the developments that we've seen in trust and safety that I think is really important is this aspect of content moderation no longer needing to be binary. So it's, it's less about these days, do you take content down, do you keep content up? We now have all of these different tools and labels that we can apply to content that allows the content to still be accessible, but it may have less reach or it may not end up in front of audiences or communities that don't want to see that kind of content. 
So there are a lot of ways that we can strike the balance. And it's also why it's really important that we are innovating on the ways that we apply content moderation. That takes us back to the earlier question about mistakes or misconceptions that in this case, faults on the law and policy side have. It's my sense that on the engineering and tech side, the trend has been towards developing more tools to either moderate content, I'll say, that a business might find problematic, or to empower users to have better control over what content they're seeing or how rapidly content might go viral or things like that. So as you say, it's not a binary sort of let's solve the content issue. And we could get into discussion whether every CEO of a tech platform has that sort of nuanced view about this. But in general, the trend seems to be let's use technology to do the easy stuff better and empower users to do the hard stuff uh, when they need to. I worry, though, that on the policy side, there is still an expectation that this is a solvable problem and that that's coming, frankly, and this is taking us back to, I think, my very first question of our discussion, both the left and the right, um, that there are certain types of content that political actors either want or don't want to have online. And the only acceptable policy outcome for them is a binary up or down, it exists or it doesn't sort of outcome. I'll ask first, is that a fair assessment? And if not, what do you make of that as this content moderation and trust and safety discussion continues into 2023? That's absolutely a fair discussion of the controversy at issue when it comes to content moderation and it's around Section 230 specifically. Again, both sides, and it reminds me of this engineer and lawyers question too, both Democrats and Republicans want to see something happen with the internet, want to see something happen with content. But at the end of the day, they want to see their pet issues taken care of when it comes to content. So with Democrats, again, that's typically going to be stuff like hate speech, misinformation, disinformation. Um, with the right, Republicans, that's typically, typically going to be, well, we want to see more content staying up. And it's really hard to sort of bring both together because if one wants more content staying up and one wants to see more content coming down, it's really hard to come to a compromise with that issue. And that's why, again, it's really important to have other ways to operate on content so that content stays available, but again, may not reach into circles, maybe left-linear progressive circles that don't want to see or engage with that content. Though that also may not be enough for policymakers as well. So again, we, we kind of come back to this question, well, is there a perfect solution for content moderation? Is there sort of a way to get both best of both worlds? And I think that's the current regulatory environment that we're operating in, which is we leave these services to sort of self-regulate and self-moderate and to create sort of the best environment that caters to their audiences and to the viewpoints that their audiences are comfortable or used to seeing. And once you give them that space, you sort of end up at this equilibrium where we are keeping as much content as possible online without keeping all of the awful stuff with it. But you're never going to have perfect moderation. We're never going to make either side perfectly content because it's impossible. I said before that I had jotted down who, what, where, when, why, and how as my questions about trust and safety. Just for, for the sake of completeness, I need to ask how and who does content moderation and makes the trust and safety decisions. I, I know 
on the content moderation side, for instance, we're always hearing stories, or at least I frequently hear stories about the large number of contractors that Facebook, for instance, employs to handle its content moderation, which just sounds like a, a miserable job. Your job is basically, if this is objectionable content, it gets flagged and sent to you and you review it and you're just locked in an office eight, maybe 12 hours a day, I don't know, uh, reviewing the world's worst content and deciding, is this bad enough that we should take it down? So who, the question is, uh, who actually does content moderation and the who and the how of content moderation and trust and safety decision-making? Yeah, it's honestly a little bit everything that you described, and it's a little bit of everyone and everything when it comes down to it. So usually for rudimentary content decisions, that's why earlier before I, I was discussing sort of the escalation process, for things that are easy calls, right? And I hate to say easy, but there are some obvious calls about what we want and don't want to see on our services. Pornography is typically a good example. Usually that's going to be outsourced to content moderation vendor teams. And that can be, you know, folks who, who work for those companies really can come from any and all backgrounds. I've sort of seen it all. It's folks who are, you know, interested in contract work for a tech company, they're looking for maybe it's their in college looking to make a little bit more money on the side. I've seen folks who do it as a full time job. I've also seen folks who have started to enter the content moderation space that have specific backgrounds or expertise, usually that's a regional background where they understand sort of the cultural norms and rules and laws that govern sort of that market, typically outside the US, they speak the language, again, they understand the culture. So it's a wide array of folks who go into these content moderation vendor teams. And usually that's where it's going to start. You know, that's the, if we're talking about the life cycle of content in your typical trust and safety org, usually it's going to start with your vendor teams taking a look at easy calls. They'll make those calls. When it comes down to stuff that is maybe outside of the typical flowcharts that they might be following or the guidelines that they've been given about how to act on content, that's when you're going to get into an escalation. Now, an escalation could go to somebody who is immediately above that person, but still within the vendor team, or the company could have specific rules that say, if you are engaging, if you see this kind of content, or, or you don't know how to make a call on this kind of content, or it involves a sensitive actor, or you know a major political actor, even that's got a lot of controversy in the news right now, then you might that content might be escalated to somebody that's um, actually working inside the company. And so that was actually the role that I had at Google when I was in trust and safety is I usually worked with escalations. I would identify sort of how Google would respond to these controversial, tricky borderline content decisions. And then I was also charged with figuring out why it became an escalation in the first place and identifying gaps in either the vendor team's knowledge or gaps in the flow or procedure that I created to train the vendor teams on, on content. So it's a lot of different actors that come into play when you're doing content moderation. But the important thing to remember, and I'm bringing this up only because it's come up so frequently, especially with the Twitter files debate, is that at the end of the day, it is the company's decision to keep that content up, to remove it, to place a label on it, et cetera. That decision remains in the hands of the company. And nobody else, no other external player is able to make that decision. That's a reflection both of company policy, I expect, but also just fundamentally the First Amendment. Um, the, the companies are, are speakers and free speech rights empower them to make those decisions. And this actually is a nice dovetail again back to the earlier discussion about the technology. 
and how technology and policy can play together here. It's my understanding that the Twitter architecture, just to use Twitter as an example, when someone writes a tweet, there are two different ways that you can figure out how you're going to send it to that user's followers. Either when I go to read my timeline, Twitter can say, okay, this is your account. I'm going to pull in all the tweets from the people you follow and construct your timeline. Or it can pre-process it and say, okay, you just tweeted this out. We're going to send it to all the followers that you have. And it turns out Twitter does both, and it's because they need to do both. If you don't have many followers, technologically, it works better to pull in the tweets when you load your timeline. But if you have 10 million followers, technologically, it makes a lot more sense. It's a lot more efficient and faster to pre-process all of your tweets when you send the tweet and push it to your followers which means there's a technological distinction between high follower accounts and low follower accounts. And this kind of dovetails with one of the dimensions of content moderation. If I tweet out something that is potentially of political importance, but it's problematic in some way, well, I don't have many followers. So they may say, okay, this is problematic speech. We don't like this. It's also not of political importance because you're not an important person. I accept that. That's just the nature of political speech. Whereas if someone with 10 million followers tweets out the same thing, hey, maybe that tweet is of political significance or it's something that a lot of people might find offensive, but it's support for a political organization or an underrepresented group, or it's part of the conversation that we're having as a country. So it should be thought about and evaluated differently. And it's really interesting that there are both political and First Amendment sort of reasons that we can think about that, but there are also technological reasons that we need to treat these different types of speech differently. Absolutely. And there's business reasons too. I mean, it comes down to these services. They don't want to put their name for some of this type of content. They don't want to put their name next to it. Their advertisers don't want to put their brands next to it. Users don't want to see it. I always laugh when policymakers kind of come out and say, oh, there are no incentives for internet services to act responsibly. And it's like, what, what do you mean there's no incentives? Their entire business model is based on providing and publishing information that caters to their own brand, their advertisers brand, and the audiences that are coming to their service in the first place. Of course, they have those incentives in there, their business incentives. Wait, are, are you saying that trust is important to the operation of these services <laughs> and that maybe trust and safety is about maintaining that trust between the user base and the service? I know it's a shocking concept, but yeah. it is. It goes hand in hand. And it's why trust and safety, again, has become its own profession. It's it's a hard task. It's a hard balance to strike. But it is also the entire business of these internet services. Well, Jess, we're just about at the end of our time. But uh, I'm going to put you on the spot since we're also just about at the end of the year and ask if you have any predictions or I'll be perhaps more optimistic hopes for the year ahead, 2023. It's a hard question to answer. And it's mostly because I don't want to be super cynical. I feel like I've been pretty cynical throughout this year. Look, I think next year we're going to have a lot of seriously difficult battles when it comes to preserving online speech. Take a look at how the states have been operating alone this past year. 
California just enacted several social media service bills. These states and local governments are figuring out how to get around the First Amendment, how to get around Section 230, and they're enacting policies that make it harder for these internet services to do their jobs when it comes to content moderation, when it comes to striking the balance and all those difficult and tricky decisions that we discussed today. So I think the future of internet speech, the future of content moderation is going to be an uphill battle next year. It's especially the case for these, these four Supreme Court battles that you know we're having over First Amendment and over Section 230. Any one of those Supreme Court cases, as Professor Goldman talked about in the, in the last episode on tech, any of those cases have the ability to really upend decades of case law that these services have built their entire content moderation and UGC publishing businesses on as, as a foundation. So that's sort of the, I guess, nihilistic or cynical take about the internet next year. It's going to be a, a hard fight. This is going to be an opportunity for, I think, users, for the internet companies, for everyone to sort of take back the internet from these policymakers that are hellbent on keeping us from using and creating user-generated content. But for the not cynical take, I think the future of at least trust and safety is progressing in the in the right way. As I said before, we're starting to see it evolve into a more professionalized industry that's separate from the UGC publishing industry. Organizations like TSPA, that Trust and Safety Professional Association, are making strides in normalizing and encouraging careers in trust and safety. They're providing spaces for industry to have critical and candid conversations about the challenges that these industry players are facing every day which is not normal or comfortable for our industry today. And they're even starting to develop basic norms and guidelines for new internet companies that emerge and you know, so that they can follow and innovate on their own spaces too. So those are the things that I'm actually really excited to see with regards to trust and safety and how trust and safety is going to sort of evolve beyond the silos in which most of this work is typically done. Put simply, you know, we're better when we work together. And so that's what kind of makes me excited and hopeful for next year is hopefully these conversations, we can eventually evolve beyond the point of how do we force internet services to do our bidding, to do what we want for our political agendas, and rather, how do we innovate in the trust and safety space so that internet services can creatively promote and uplift user speech while also protecting users and promoting or, or empowering these communities to thrive online. Those are the things that keep me hopeful for next year. Thank you, Jess Myers, for taking the time with us today. It's uh, greatly appreciated, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the new year. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.